And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the Hop Day edition of The Real Investment Show. Of course, as uh, we kind of get into the week this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, something that Congress may have actually well, they haven't done it yet, but they may be doing something right. We talk a lot on the show about trying to help people be better savers and give people access to more money. There's a bill in the works that Danny and I will talk about this morning that uh, may do just that. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into that this morning. So stick around. A uh, couple of things yesterday. Uh, markets just kind of flopped around yesterday, a little bit negative territory, sitting right on support at those moving averages. And again, you know, the, the, the bullish technical underpinnings remain in place. Uh, the MACD buy signal is still doing fine this morning. Futures are looking to point up very sharp, fairly sharply this morning. Dow's up about 250 points, NASDAQ up 100 points. Um, and this is just really kind of this, more of this kind of action we've had in the market. So, you know, a couple of down days like we've had, Markets kind of reset a little bit, then you get a little bit more of a rally, then a little bit of a reset. And it's really kind of been this whole type of pattern that we've had here for the last couple of weeks. And again, this is this is interesting, despite all of the you know economic turmoil, banking crisis, etc. Markets are again are, are typically doing are actually just kind of doing just fine here. And I know that's a little bit you know not logical. You'd think, well, yeah, with all this stuff going on, markets should be down a whole lot more. But again, markets are pricing, as we talked about the other day, markets are kind of just pricing all this stuff in. Uh, interestingly, though, um, as we talked about uh, last week, and I've got an article coming out on this, that earnings estimates for the S&P 500, so S&P Global, they're the ones that report the earnings estimates for the S&P 500. Those are gap-based earnings. And so a little different than what FactSet does, which is FactSet, uh, produces operating earnings, which are the earnings without any of the bad stuff. So if you want actual earnings you know, for the S&P, go look at what S&P produces. They're estimating now, and they just released their estimates for 2024. So they are now estimating by the end of 2024, earnings for the S&P 500 will be back to where they were in January of 2022. Now remember, we got earnings surging in 2021 and really 2020 as well, leading to that peak in earnings in 2022 because of a rapid spike in inflation, which led to pricing power for businesses at a time when we laid off a lot of workers, which reduced our operating costs and created these big profit margins. And we gave people $5 trillion to go spend in the economy, which is what generated the revenue for those earnings. Now, the interesting thing is, is how are we going to get back to that record level of revenues if you've got declining inflation, slower economic growth, and no liquidity? So just something to kind of think about here because optimism is certainly beginning to return to the markets in terms of Wall Street analysts. Economists also getting a little bit more optimistic now by predicting that this year's economic growth will improve as well. So now economists are starting to ratchet up earnings growth, uh, sorry, economic growth expectations as well with only one negative quarter of growth this year. And, and you know, they're ex expecting that the second quarter of this year will have negative growth and we're back in a positive territory. 
Um, but if we take a look at a lot of the economic data, it's already starting to improve here a bit as well. So we may not even get that one negative quarter. Again, this is all fairly, you know, consternating when you consider the Fed's hiking rates aggressively. And we're talking about, you know, uh, and of course, a lot of the headlines and a lot of the media talk is about, you know, the economic devastation that's, that's coming around the corner. Yet things are, are, are holding into place here. And this is why it's always so very important, as we've talked about before, is, you know, when you listen to headlines, and particularly in a lot of the media, that's to get your attention, right? So a lot of the stuff that's put out there in videos and, and YouTube channels and all this stuff, it's massively doom and gloom right now. The economy's going to end and the dollar's going to zero and, you know, all this type of stuff. And that's great for getting people to click on links and click on headlines and do those type of things. But we've all got to kind of set that aside and say, okay, that's one view you know, what is the opposing view and what is reality? And try to figure out what the reality of all the situation is. And, and look, I don't have the answer. So don't, you know, don't expect me to tell you, it's like, okay, all these people are wrong. I'm the only one that knows what's going to happen, Mark. I don't. <laughs> but this is why we spend so much time talking about technicals in the short term. Because look, all the stuff that's related to the economy, and again, I'm not, if, if you believe the economy is about to wind up into the deepest recession since the Great Depression, or if you believe the economy is about to, to you know, explode in growth for one reason or the other, nothing wrong with that view. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any one of those views. But those things take time to play out. And the problem is, is by making a bet today about some future event, if that event doesn't occur, it could impede the growth of your portfolio and, and hurt you financially. So, you know, it's, it's okay to have these longer term views, but remember these are longer term views. And in the short term, the only thing that matters is what the market's doing, right? It's only, it only matters what the 5 million people or 10 million people or however many people are out there that are investing in the markets are, are doing at one singular moment in time, right? And what is moving prices? Because remember for every buyer, there has to be a seller. And the only difference in the markets and what makes prices go up and down is just the price at which that buyer and seller agree to transact. So as a good example, yesterday markets were down a little bit, right? All that means is, is that somebody sold Apple and somebody bought Apple and they just, and the seller just agreed to sell it at a little bit lower price than where it was selling yesterday. But it is still the same number of shares. It is still the same dollars transacted. This is the problem with the money on the sideline scenario, right? There's this myth of all this money sitting on the sidelines. There's $5.2 trillion of money sitting in money markets right now. And that's just waiting to come flooding back into the markets. And when that money comes back in, man, these markets are just going to explode. Not really. Because again, like a football team, I can have 50 players on the, on the sideline of a, of, a, of a football field, right? But I can only have 11 players on the field at a time. And so if I put one more player on the field, I've got to take one off. So there's never more than 11 players for each team on the field at one time. So it doesn't matter how many times that I, that I put players on the field or take players off the field, there's always 11 players. Same thing for the market. So all this money that's sitting on the sidelines only moves the markets because if the money comes in from, from money market funds, somebody's got to be selling going back to money market funds because you have to have a buyer and a seller. 
And the only thing that will matter ultimately is the price. Now, also the other problem with this money on the sideline mist is that the vast majority of that money is corporate cash. That cash is used for mergers and acquisitions, payroll, those type of things. It's never meant for investing anyway. And that's the vast majority of that money. So again, yes, some of that money is sitting in money markets. We have money sitting in money markets right now. And when the market improves, we will take that money out of the money market and we will put it back into the stock market and we'll buy equities from people willing to sell at whatever price that is. Hopefully we'll be buying at the right price and our prices will eventually rise. That's the whole purpose of investing. But this big, this myth that there's all this money on the sidelines, it's just gonna come running back into the markets. We're gonna have another massive bull market. That's not really true. And I've got some charts out this morning on Twitter Actually, that money market balance has been increasing since 1974. (laughs) So it's just a function of the economy. All right, quick break. We'll come back. We will pick up with Danny Ratliff. We'll talk a little bit about this bill that Congress is working on and why it may be just a very good thing for you. Wouldn't that be nice to have something good come out of Congress for a change? We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Long-term care may sound like a bore, but if you neglect it, you'll pay even more. Join Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso for our next Candid Coffee. Don't be foolish about long-term care. Saturday, April 1st. You may think you're prepared for long-term care, but you may be fooling yourself. Learn how to plan to protect yourself and your loved ones. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Saturday, April 1st. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. It's uh, Wednesday, Sunday edition. That means Danny Ratliff is here. As always, Danny, how are you? Hey, doing great. Thank Good. You. Good. Uh, so, you know, you and I have spent, you know, a lot of time in the past talking about, you know, some of the best ways to save money, particularly for individuals that have access to health savings accounts. That is uh, one of those few triple tax benefits that you can get. And you're a big fan of HSAs. I'm a huge fan. Huge fan. Problem is, is that not that many people have access to them. Because right. you have to have a high deductible insurance plan, et cetera, right? No, that, that is a problem. And so we are seeing that more and more employers are beginning to offer this because of the they're passing on the expenses to the employees. So as more people have access to the health savings uh, accounts, this is a great bill, I think. Yeah, well, hold on. Before we get to the bill, let, let's, let's back this up just yeah. a sec. Cause yeah. Because when we're talking about HSAs, um, they're not that widely adopted because a lot of people just don't know about them. Or, uh, or I think they're used incorrectly. Correct. I think it's a bigger problem. So how does, you know, so first of all, just real quick, what's, a, what's an HSA? Let's just start from, from the basics for everybody. Yep. What's an HSA and how do I know if I have access to one? So typically your employer is going to, going to give you access to that if you are in a high deductible health plan. Now the issue is, is that that's not always the case. So you need to go in and do a little bit of homework, especially, you know, as you're seeing, you know, I visited with somebody yesterday, they had an, uh, their enrollment was right now. Now, historically, that's usually around October, uh, usually fourth quarter. But you may have access to this right now and not even know it. The other caveat here, Lance, is that many people use HSAs like an FSA, a flexible spending account. So the HSA, you actually don't have to roll the funds over. So 
if you have access to this through your employer, it's likely going to be through your benefits as you're logging in. You'll be able to see all the information there. Um, use these accounts in a, in a much different way than a flexible spending account. We want these funds to grow. You want to put these funds aside and use this for retirement. So as you mentioned earlier, this is mm-hmm. the only account in the world that has that triple tax benefit. Funds go in tax-free, they grow tax-free, and then as you pull them out for medical expenses, you're going to be able to utilize these funds and distribute them tax-free as well. Right. So And, and so like with an FSA, you have to use those funds by the... In the use it or year. lose it. Yeah. And, yeah. and HSAs, you never lose it. So you just it can accumulate over time. They're invested in the markets, whatever you're invested in. And they'll grow over time. And then, then you can, you can, as you have medical. And so the whole, and, and by the way, just the reason for the HSA and the reason it's tied to a high deductible plan is let's say that, you know, again, as Danny says, employers are going, I can't afford health care insurance coverage. It's just too expensive. So we're going to pass more and more cost over to the employee. And so one way to reduce that health care benefit is to offer a high deductible plan. So in other words, you may have a, $2,500 or a $5,000 medical bill to meet first before insurance kicks in. And so the goal of the HSA is you contribute funds to HSA. Those funds are sitting there. So now something happens and you go to the hospital and they go, okay, well, your bill is going to be ten grand. You take 5000 from your HSA, pay your deductible, and then insurance pays the rest of it. So that's the reason for the HSA, and this is why it's a good thing. But again, a lot of people don't have access to these. And so this bill, uh, Representative Chip Roy from Texas, has introduced a bill that would make tax-free health savings accounts available to all Americans. Um, And again, currently most Americans can't use HSAs due to the kind of the stringent rules. And this bill called the Healthcare Freedom Act would change those rules and allow all Americans to have access to these, which I think is a great thing. If we, and the, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, you know the problem is we can't get people to save money to start with. That's right. <laughs> so we we can look at the stats and know that. But you know this is one of those you know opportunities where that would allow people to save money, put it away, use it for medical benefits, offset some of their medical costs, et cetera. Yeah, I think the idea, though, is that you need to use this correctly. You need to put the funds aside. So ideally, what I encourage most people to do is that, okay, let's, if you're going to invest the funds, and and if you have one of these accounts, please try to pay medical expenses out of pocket. I know it's not always possible, but if you can, and you have the cash flow to do so, go ahead and fully fund this account. Put these funds aside. You can put up to $3,650 currently per individual. So if you have a family, you can put up to $7,300 into the account. So what this bill is actually doing is going to increase that amount. So number one, allow everyone access to an HSA, which will be great. Um, number two, it's going to raise that from $3,650 to $12,000. So if you are if you have a family or you're married, you'll then be able to put up to $24,000 into this type of an account. Now, I'm holding my breath on this one, or, or maybe <laughs> I shouldn't, because as we're continuing to hear more and more proposals about increasing taxes, this is one that would actually be a benefit and help people eliminate it. But with the rising uh, cost of healthcare, I think this is something that maybe can get some bipartisan um, you know, yeah. push behind it. Yeah. Now, and again, you know, this, uh, you know, there's there's a, a, an interesting, and you just mentioned this. There's an interesting benefit to high health, high deductible healthcare plans. A lot of people hate them because you know it's like, oh man, I've got to come out of pocket for you know three grand or whatever my deductible is, and it's and it's it's kind of an onerous bill, and I don't I don't disagree with that. But the reason that insurance costs are so high is because of twenty five dollar copays, 
um, and very low deductibles. And so every time somebody gets sick, they come down with the, the, the common cold or whatever. They run to the emergency room. They you know, run to the doctor's visit, et cetera. And so the cost of utilization causes the cost of insurance to go up. The, the benefit of high, health, you know, high deductible plans is like auto insurance in, in a lot of ways. You know, you pay for the maintenance on your car, right? You pay for the oil changes. You pay for the tire rotations and new tires and the maintenance and the upkeep. And then when you get into an accident, that's when your insurance kicks in and pays for the cost of recovery from the accident. But that's why your insurance premiums are so low for autos is because it's only for catastrophic use. You do the maintenance. So one of the benefits, and, and again, Danny just mentioned this, is the beautiful thing about HSAs is it changes psychological behavior a bit because now you have this pile of money over here that's growing tax-free that you put in tax-free and people don't want to touch it. So they start paying out of pocket for the maintenance, right? You know, I get sick. I pay for that out of pocket. You know, it's, it's it's $200, whatever it is. I just pay for that and go, and I don't touch that. If and, and one of the benefits of giving everybody access to this HSA, if you could change the behavior through this, it would start lowering the cost of actual insurance itself. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of benefits to this. And we actually encourage, so number one, you, you want to be able to put some funds into cash. So even if you can't invest this, save some funds. So if you're out of work, you do have to go and reach somewhere else to, to make healthcare premiums. Um, this is an ideal place to be able to utilize. Um, but I would prefer you have a savings account, you have your financial vulnerability cushion, then you have your HSA if, if necessary. Now, ideally, we want to use those funds later in life in retirement yeah. because we know the cost. I mean, the cost for a 65-year-old couple from healthy services has gone from you know $300,000 over your lifetime in healthcare expenses to, to getting closer to four. Yeah. I mean, these numbers are astronomical. And so we want to make sure that that you're utilizing them properly. So I typically would encourage someone to put two years of premiums in cash. Then from there, begin to invest. And I think this is a this is one of those accounts, like you mentioned earlier, many people don't use it properly. They're, they're putting funds into it. Then they're turning around and taking them right out. So you're not really getting the full benefit of what you could see. But this would also reduce your taxable income if you can mm -hmm. put these funds aside. And then allowing people to put more I think it's great. So there's other times, Lance, that we actually will tell people, hey, okay, if we're looking at the hierarchy of savings, we're putting funds aside, we may want to go to the 401k. If we're not maxing everything out, get the match. And then are you getting a match in the HSA? Go ahead and then max that out because that's the account that's getting that triple tax benefit. Right. Then go back to the 401k. Yeah. And the, the, and this you know, and again, we could, this this also takes us back to the bigger conversation of just getting people to save money. Yeah, you know, you know, one of the biggest pushbacks I get from individuals, you know, people I get emails every day is like, you know, I want to I want to build wealth and I want to you know save for you know whatever, and that's great. And so as soon as I start asking a couple of questions, I go, well, are you fully funding your four hundred one k? Well, I can't afford that, right? It, it, I just I can't save that much money out of my paycheck. And I'm like, okay, well, that's the first step. <laughs> you know, we got to work on the budget at home. And it's great. You know, right. I can put 12, I can put, you know, $22,000 into my 401. What, what's the the limit this year for 23? Oh, geez. 22,000. Yeah. Anyway, so it's a long day. It's already six o'clock in the morning. Anyway, I can put 23, 24,000 into my, it's you know, 19,000 plus an additional uh, 6,500, I believe. For catch up. Okay. Yeah. So there, and see, I'm over 55. So there you go. Um, I can put that money in my 401k, then I can put potentially 12000 in my HSA, then I need to save some money into my investment after-tax account. 
and and again, just getting people to fully fund their 401k is a challenge. And again, we know this by simply looking at the um, you know the 401k analysis that come out from like Fidelity and Vanguard every year about you know the contribution limits to 401k plans, the average balances. And then you just look at the number of companies that actually offer 401k plans. Only about 25% of Americans actually even contribute to a 401k plan. So I think one of the big challenges we have on top of, of, of all this with healthcare and healthcare savings is just getting people to save money, period. That's, you know, that's the one thing we've got to work no, on. No, it is. And many people aren't even maxing the 401ks out. So I, I misspoke earlier. It's 22500 Yeah. Um, but so th- you do have a lot more bandwidth. This They're continuing to increase this for inflationary pressures. And so... Um, this is something, though, that if they continue, if they raise this bill, I think this will be a really nice kind of another another tool in the tool chest. Yeah. So I'd love to see it. I, I, yeah. I hope it. I hope it can get some traction. And and this is and this is something too that should not be partisan, right? This should be a, you know, a very bipartisan effort on getting this bill passed because this benefits everybody. It doesn't matter what I what side of the political spectrum you're on, it it it'll be a benefit. It does. I I'm just you know little bit leery of it in the sense that, you know, if they're trying to raise taxes, everything that we continue to hear is that, you know, we, we need to tax more people. Government needs money. I don't see them really inclined to, to give us an additional benefit to reduce our taxable income. Right. Well, unfortunately, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, getting more taxes, when we come back from the break, um, we'll talk about what's going on with 401. Uh, sorry, for not 401k plans. Social Security. Social Security. Thank you. Uh, we'll talk about what's happening with Social Security as they're running. And I had an interesting conversation with my son yesterday. Uh, he's in from the UK right now and uh, had an interesting conversation with him because we're talking about filing taxes and Social Security and those type of things. And it was interesting, his take on it. And we'll, we'll talk about that as well. We'll come back from the break. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Danny Ratliff joining me. Social Security, um, always one of the big hot debate topics because... You know, every year we get the reports from the Social Security Administration Board basically saying that by such and such a date, they're going to have to cut benefits because of, you know, lack of money. And, and this, look, this is part and parcel of what is an inevitable problem that they're going to have is because back in the 30s when Social Security was founded, we had 16 workers paying in for every worker taking out. In the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, we keep adding more and more people to the roles. Everybody from widows to orphans to firemen to, you know, this group and that group and whoever's disadvantaged, wives, etc. You know, we keep adding more people to the social welfare role at the same time that we have fewer and fewer people continuing to pay in. Today, we have less than two people paying in for every person taking out of Social Security. So, you know, one of the inevitable you know, problems is that there's simply just not enough money there, right? It's, it's it's the pension problem. And, you know, so 
every year we get a lot of talk from politicians about, well, we need to do things to fix Social Security so we can make it a, a viable, long-term, funded, solvent entity so that, as Rich says, there's not people lined up in the middle of the street. You know, because there is a tremendous number of people in the in the country that are dependent solely on Social Security for their retirement income. And that's a that's a sad state of affairs, but that's the way it is. So, you know, there are lots of proposals. Nobody wants to tackle the challenge because it's politically unelectable. <laughs> so it kind of gets kicked down the road. But, you know, there's a lot of talk every year about needing to raise taxes to increase more revenue to pay for Social Security. And as Danny said a second ago, when we're talking about HSAs, one of the pushbacks on the bill may be is like, hey, we're giving people an ability to pay less taxes when we actually need more tax taxes for the government. Yeah, and I think this is a significant problem. And this bill right here is not going to actually fix any of that. None of it. And, and, no. and I don't I don't suspect we're going to see something here you know, that actually is going to have some teeth to it for a while. And, and it's unfortunate because they will kick the can down uh, the road, especially if you look at what's going on in France right now. Right. I mean, they're rioting in the streets because they raised the retirement age. Right. Um, and, and that's something that will likely have to happen here. And it's unfortunate. But what this bill actually goes out and addresses. So uh, Representative Glenn Grothman out of Wisconsin came up with a bill. It's H.R. 6925, which is very important for all of you. Remember this. okay? <laughs> There, there um, would be a quiz at the end of the show. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but there's, they're actually looking to raise the retirement earnings <clears throat> threshold. So currently, here's, here's the problem. A lot of people are retiring earlier. And so everybody says, what, what, when are you going to retire? Oh, I'm going to retire at 65. What we find is that that actual retirement age is close to 62. Yeah. And so a lot of people are dependent on Social Security, so they need it. They have to take it. But here's the issue is that if you make too much money, there's a retirement earnings threshold. They will actually withhold benefits your Social Security benefits from you until you reach full retirement age. So they're trying to discourage you from taking Social Security early. So if you make more currently right now and you're under uh, full retirement age, every $2 over $21,240, you're going to have $1 in benefit withheld. So I know people, Lance, who've retired early, didn't actually need the money, but emotionally talk to the neighbors and, or you see the headline news and say, oh my gosh, Social Security is going away. I'm getting every dollar I can from them. I'm starting it now. And, and listen, there are times that I, I can make that argument. Maybe you should start it early. You just have to need it for cash flow. Um, your longevity is not very long. Maybe you don't have a spouse that's going to be dependent on this. So, you know, Social, Social Security, there are some moving parts as far as how you should take this. But if you're taking it early and you make too much, you have or you're pulling too much from a retirement account, you're going to have benefits withheld. And in, in that example earlier, I had somebody who took it and it was an emotional. They had to pay every dollar back that first year. Then Social Security decided they're going to withhold the benefits because the income was going to continue to be higher. And essentially, you're going to get a bump when you reach full retirement age and start getting those benefits back. But now you've locked in a discount. So what this bill is looking to address is to raise it from $21,240 to $30,000. Because what we're seeing in this environment, many people, because of the pandemic, retired early. Uh, you know, a lot of times we see it because of health issues. And sometimes not even your own, but it's a loved one. So you look at the baby boomer generation, you know, you call it the sandwich generation. Mm -hmm. You've got parents you're taking care of. You have kids you're taking care of. And so a lot of times people are retiring early because of necessity just to help, you know, in, in, the, in the home. So this would raise this from $21,240. $21,240 to $30,000, which I think would be nice because we are seeing more and more people going back to work. I have a lot of clients, Lance, that have decided to go back to work doing something they enjoy. They're not making a lot of money, but it's something that keeps them active, 
Mm-hmm. It's something they, they learn a new trade or new skill or they're just out in their social. Right. So I think this would help people in that environment. However, I mean, it's still $30,000. You're not getting real far on that these days. Right. Exactly. But again, again, this is why it's so important that, you know, when you're doing your financial planning, and this is something that Danny and Rich and John Penn and, and Jonathan McCarty do exceptionally well, you know, at our firm is really analyzing the impact of these decisions, right? Do you retire at 62, 65, 67? Never, according to Danny, in regards to me. Well, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you don't, you're not even eligible for Social Security. You didn't know this? Yeah, I've never paid into it. Uh, anyway... <laughs> <laughs> the uh, but you know but this but this can make a big difference. I mean, you can be little, literally leaving hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table by making a a emotionally driven decision because of market or economic or news headlines, right? And yeah. so, just it's and, and we do see that often. So when we're doing, especially for a, a couple, you do find that you know this is a this is a decision, a joint decision, number one. So especially if you have a, a the the breadwinner and they go ahead and take it early. Well, and, and maybe you have a somebody who stayed home and, and worked in the household. You're locking in a significant discount long term. So you're going to be getting a lot less money. And we do find many times it is hundreds of thousands of dollars over your lifetime looking at cost of living adjustments. Um, it's significant. Yeah. And so taking Social Security properly is a great win for for your financial plan. Because it, it, it takes that burden off variable assets, right? I mean, most people have Social Security, the 401k. If you've done a really good job, you have other assets in other places. But, you know, the majority of America, their savings is in their home and in a 401k. Right. And so if you're pulling from that 401k, that's all taxable income. And so that's where we have to be really, really cautious if you're retiring early. And, you know, long term, getting more and more um, out of Social Security. Look, this is a it's a it's an annuity. It's a pension. Mm-hmm. And so it's one you cannot live. I, I certainly make sure you take this properly. Yeah, exactly. So having said that, <laughs> there you go. All you need to know about Social Security in, in one morning. In four minutes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, one of the things is that what your point? Sorry. Awkward pause. Oh, just tease the uh uh, oh, that's right. Candid coffee we have on Saturday. Speaking of speaking of Social Security, I forgot about yeah. that. Well, well, this was not Social Security driven, but right, we are but doing. It's part, it's part of that retirement thing, though. Yeah, it, this is this is a big part. Is so talking about you know how people are saving, where they're putting funds, and and this is another one where usually people come to us and say, "I need long term care," um, and it's usually because they're taking care of their parents who actually need long term care or have it. They say, wow, I didn't understand the cost, and, and you know, I didn't, don't think I saved properly for this. And so we're going to be discussing long-term care, You know, how to utilize it if it's necessary. I mean, we, we visit a lot of people that are self-insured that still choose to go out and look at, at exploring the options of long-term care just to try to create some type of legacy as well so you're not so dependent on your assets. And so we're going to talk about that this Saturday, April 1st at uh, 8 a.m., and uh, go sign up realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be taking questions. We're going to cover just a lot of broad information on long-term care. A lot of misconceptions. You know, I think a lot of people think, Lance, that Medicare covers long-term care. Right. And it does not. And so we're going to talk about what exactly you can you can count on and what you can't. Exactly. And are you going to wear the dunce cap? Um, evidently. I, I did not approve that graphic. <laughs> so- <laughs> I think you should. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, long-term care is a, kind of an interesting thing. And, and you know, when, when should somebody actually start actively looking at 
you know, buying long-term care? I mean, how old do you, I mean, do you do this in your forties, your fifties? Yeah. I mean, you know? I, ideally in your fifties, I think, but um, you could do this in your forties. I mean, a lot of these plans won't even allow until you're 40 years of age to actually go out and, and purchase one. We're seeing it that there's, there's more and more flexibility here as the last couple of years. And so the problem with long-term care is that, you know, a lot of people know somebody that, that has a policy and, if you bought it back in the 80s and 90s, the actuaries got it way wrong. And so traditional long-term care, you've seen that the cost has gone up exponentially for these individuals. So take somebody who is maybe paying, you know, 30, 40, 50 bucks a month for long traditional long-term care. Yeah. And now they're paying hundreds of dollars. This is a big part of their their income that they have coming in as far as from an expense perspective. And they're closer to needing it, but they can't afford it. They've been priced out because these companies have gone in and, and continuously increased the cost of it. So we we do look and utilize traditional long-term care from time to time, but there's a lot more, um, I think, activity around these hybrid policies where they have a, a return of premium potentially, or you know you pay a specific amount and then you're not paying anymore. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing a lot more people utilize those types of um, policies for long-term care. And so I think that's where the industry's going because you know what you're paying for and you know what you're going to get out of it. Some of them actually even have a, you know, they're, they're kind of a, a life insurance policy that have a long-term care rider more or less. And so as the industry continues to evolve, evolve, we're, we're constantly doing so as well, making sure we're utilizing that and addressing it properly within the financial plan. But you know, many people don't do it until 60, 65. Uh, and many times it's because at that age, they're taking care of loved ones who are using it. And they say, shoot, I need to do this. I didn't address it earlier. The problem is the longer you wait, the more expensive it gets and the less likely you're going to be able to actually, you know, get through underwriting, right? Because right. now you're more likely to have some type of pre-existing condition. Exactly. I'm just planning to go quick, painlessly, and quietly. Um, yeah, okay. Tomorrow. Have you ever seen the movie This Is 40? Yeah. So the husband and wife, they're married, and, they, and she's turning 40, and it's a big deal. And so they're talking about, have you ever thought about killing me? And they they t- tell each other how they're going to kill each other off. <laughs> anyway, be right back after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, uh, <clears throat> so I said I'd tell you a little story about this conversation I had with my son because we're talking about health care this morning and Social Security and, you know, this type of stuff. And, you know, I hear a lot of you know, commentary on the media and stuff and, and a lot of misconceptions about the cost of healthcare in the US and you know it's it's so expensive here and it's so cheap everywhere else and 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 there's big differences. And and so I was having this conversation with my son. So my son, I've told you the story before, he had uh, he he moved to Germany, was was there working for a while. He's now moved to the UK um, and he's going to uh, college there to get his main uh, his mechanical engineering degree, and so we were talking about he and he's, he's home right now. We're working on the student visa part, so it, and so we're working on this kind of legal stuff. So he's he's got to be here for a couple of months while we get his visa ironed out, and he needed to go to the doctor and just get a checkup. Nothing serious, and so um, you know it was it was 
you know, I called the doctor and said, hey, pff, need to get him in. He's like, okay, tomorrow, 2 o'clock, come in, done. He's like, you got an appointment for tomorrow? I was like, yeah. <laughs> the way it works here. <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, because, you know, it, it takes several weeks to get an appointment, you know, in Germany. And then in the UK, it's the same way. And so we so this kind of sparked this conversation about the misconceptions of healthcare in countries, in different countries. And I've lived all over the world, so I've been through this as well. And, and in most countries, there's two separate healthcare systems. There is the public healthcare system that you pay for through your taxes. Then there's the private healthcare system if you want good healthcare. And if you want really good healthcare, you come to the U.S. So. <laughs> You know, it, it's an interesting, and, and again, there's a lot of this talk around the country about, you know, especially from the kind of the millennial generation is the, you know, cost of healthcare. And look, cost of, the cost of healthcare in the U.S. is expensive. I am not arguing that point at all. However, it's not as expensive as you think when you start talking about quality of healthcare and also how it's paid for. And so this is where my son got and I got into this conversation. And I go, okay, well, let's talk about the differences. Because he's he's like, oh, healthcare in the UK is the best because it's all free. And I go, well, is it really free? How do you pay for it? And he's like, well, it just all comes out of my paycheck. <laughs> and so when I get my paycheck, I don't have to pay for healthcare. It's it's already paid for. And I go, yeah, that's true. I said, let's talk about your taxes. And I said, how much money do you make? And, he, you know, so we went through what his tax base would be here in the United States. And it turns out that he pays substantially more in taxes by a large amount in the U.K. But it's even more egregious than that. And this is where this is where people really have a big misunderstanding about things between the U.S. and other countries. If you make $30,000 a year in the U.S., you're in the top 1% of income earners worldwide. So put that in your hat for a second. Think about that. We talk about wealth and equality and all this, but $30,000 in the U.S., 1% of top, top 1% of income earners worldwide. So my son's going to school to get some mechanic, mechanical engineering degree. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's talk about this, right? And so as part of this, I said, if you came to the United States, and yes, I will give you that our healthcare cost is higher in the United States. And so I pulled up Glassdoor on the interweb. And I said, let's plug in what a mechanical engineer would make, the salary range for a mechanical engineer in the U.S., according to Glassdoor. Now, again, I'm not saying there's – and I don't email me if you're a mechanical engineer and say, well, I'll make this. Okay, I'm just going by Glassdoor. Okay, so <laughs> just – I needed a factual example, just not stuff I'm making up. And he says, so I go to Glassdoor, and I pull it up, and I say, mechanical engineer, salary range in the U.S., 57000 to $110,000 a year. And he was like, wow, that's, that's pretty good. I go, yeah. I said, well, let's look at what you're going to make in the U.K. once you get your mechanical engineering degree, according to Glassdoor. 42000 to $72,000 for the same degree in the UK. So a substantial discount of what you're earning here and you're paying more in taxes for lower quality healthcare. So like it kind of starts to go off here a little bit. I'm not convincing him to move back to the US, by the way. He's going to live in the UK. <laughs> but, you know, he's starting to understand the differential. But there's more. There's more. I said, it's not just that, Cole. I said, here's the thing, is that 
the differential in the salaries is actually even greater because the exchange rate of the pound to the dollar is 20 cents lower. It's 81 cents to the dollar. So you're actually even making less money than even what the salary range says, and you're paying higher taxes for lower quality health care. So the point about this is, is that, yes, there's a, do we have higher health care costs in the U.S.? Absolutely. Nobody's arguing that fact. Do we have problems with the healthcare system in the U.S.? Absolutely. Nobody's arguing that fact. Can we fix those problems? Absolutely. Right? We talked about one earlier. Health savings accounts would help solve that problem. Well, but that, that still puts the, the onus on the individual. Right. But Which I prefer, but many don't. Correct. But insurance companies, look, insurance company costs go up. It's supply and demand. Yeah. Right? More people demand a service. Somebody's got to pay for it. Right? Correct. And one of the misconceptions is, is that we've got 20 million people in America that are uninsured and they can't get quality health care. That is a complete falsehood because they can go to any hospital any day, they get paid for. And guess why your insurance costs are higher is because you've got to pay for those that get free health care. Everybody gets taken care of. But the point is, is that you make a tremendous amount more money in the U.S. than in other countries for exactly the same type of work. So this was this was an interesting conversation to have with him. And again, it's just, you know, this what we often forget in conversations when we're having conversations about economics or politics or anything else that we're having conversations about is the huge differentials between populations, right? There's a lot of people that come out and say, well, you know, in Norway or in Finland, you know, they have this. They also have a population of about 6 million people versus 330 million people, right? So, you know, when you start talking about these things, you have to work things on a comparative basis always and work from a, a fact, work into your arguments backwards on facts, right? Uh, and this, because again, it's always the emotional arguments and we, we kind of, you know, gloss over the important things. But, you know, the important thing for him is, is that he's, you know, he's going to college to get this degree, to have a job that is going to pay substantially less than what he could make elsewhere in the world. And to him, that's fine because he's not driven by money. It's more of a, of a, of an achievement thing that he wants to do. And that's, that's fine. I remember being that young as well. I didn't care about money then either until I had kids and wife and houses and bills <laughs> and more kids. <laughs> you know, then money starts to matter. But he's you know he's at that phase in life where it's all about the experience, which is fantastic. And I'm all for it, you know, because again, I spent the first, you know, 15 years of my life traveling all the world, got tons of experience, loved it. Experiences I'll never have again. But you know, well worth it. So I'm, I'm applauding it, supporting it, but I want him to go fully prepared fact-wise into what he's doing. Well, I think it's good to be able to kind of have that side-by-side -side comparison. So what if he wants to come back to the States? So is the quality of education as good? I mean, why are they paying so, so much less for the same job, right? Yeah. I don't have that answer. Okay. I'll have to look it up. <laughs> well, but is it, I mean, can he go get educated there, come back here? And, and do the same job. No, um, I, I'm, I'm sure the certifications are probably different. Yeah. So it probably doesn't transfer readily over. I'm sure there's some of it that will. I'm sure I'll probably get an email and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I got educated in the UK and came to the US and worked. And maybe that's the case. I don't know. Well, I know people that get educated over there all the time and yeah. come here to work. But I just wonder, like, what, what are the hurdles he may have to yeah. overcome? Right. If he wants to come home and do that same job. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. We haven't got that far into the conversation yet. <laughs> So, 
Hey, at least you got him to sit down and, and have that conversation. That's probably pretty good. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah, Dad. It's, it's interesting. No, no, no. It's interesting because you know I've got you know he's older, right? And yeah. so there's this very interesting phase you go through with kids. And any anybody has kids at this age, they're they're gonna go, "Yep, been there." Kids are awesome between the ages of zero and ten. Yeah, that's right. They are awesome kids. They you get to play with them, Legos, you know, you name it. I love kids zero to ten. Ten, eleven, somewhere in there to about nineteen. About nine. My nine year old is about nineteen. They are a pain in the ass. They know everything, right? (laughs) My daughter every time I say something to my daughter, I know. Right. She knows everything. Everything she knows. She is the smartest person. If you want to know anything, ask my daughter because she will know the answer. Yeah. And then they turn 20, and then they start to realize they don't know everything, and you actually have really good conversations with them. I, I, I love my 22-year-old because he is awesome. We can have great conversations. And, and because he does live overseas now and has lived in Germany and the U.K. and other areas where I've also lived. He probably has a little bit different perspectives. He has a very different perspective. And we, we can have very, very good conversations yeah. about things. And so because he has a very different because he's also seeing all this political nonsense that we have in the U.S. from their lens. And he's like, y'all are stupid. Stupid. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it is is a very interesting perspective. But once you can get past that teenage span where they know everything, it actually gets pretty cool again. So, yeah, I'm trying to enjoy it. But, uh, you know, we just had (laughs) my nine year old just turned 10. And like I said, I think she feels like she's 19 because that's about the same answer I get. Yeah, she knows. I know. I know, Dad. I know. Okay, great. You tell me then. (laughs) Let me let me know how it goes. Yeah. Oh, man. It's all good. It's all good. I love kids. Don't regret them. Glad they're growing up. <laughs> getting a pay raise. Get, I'm getting a pay raise because as they as they keep ticking off 18, they come off the payroll. So. Yeah, heck yeah. All right. Wraps up the show for the day. Um, got any questions or comments, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our late, Michael Leibowitz laid an article out uh, talking about, is the Fed pivot really going to be helpful for the markets? Also, make sure you're subscribed uh, to the newsletter, our daily market commentary, which comes out every morning at 730. Also, make sure while you're there, if you want to go to the long-term care event this Saturday, April the 1st, uh, 8 a.m. Central Time. Subscribe at the website and you'll get a link and basically just log in Saturday morning and we'll take care of you about long-term care. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments, hit the website, let us know. Always happy to help you out. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow.